We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to BuzzBeat Radio, your premier Charlotte Hornets show. All right, welcome back for episode 36 of BuzzBeat Radio. Wow, episode 36. That's crazy. Um, hopefully everyone enjoyed their summer and you're settling into fall and football with Hornets basketball just around the corner. Speaking of football, make sure you're following our good friends, well, Queen City Hoops good friends and BuzzBeats, uh, Sports Channel 8. You can check them out at sportschannel8.com and follow them on Twitter at Sports Channel 8. Tons of great ACC football coverage entertaining and comical crew sports channel eight is that is for sure you'll meet your last quota for the day by following them brian geisinger our great co-host at a member of the sports channel eight team um all right so on to that basketball sport which we are going to do our best to cover today despite the quiet nature of the nba season or the nba this time of year uh today on the show we're going to do michael carter williams he's questionable to start the season due to a rather mysterious left knee procedure. The Hornets unveiled their new classic pinstripe uni uh, on Wednesday. We published a player forecast on Michael K. Gilchrist on Queen City Hoops yesterday. Buzzbeat co-host Brian Geisinger did an awesome job on that, so we're going to dive into that a little bit. Uh, And there's also plenty more that I'm sure will wander off the beaten path to discuss in this episode. Uh, All right, so without further ado, now on to my good friends, and co-host of the show, Richie Randall and Brian Geisinger. Richie, <clears throat> take a deep breath. Try to decompress real quick. I don't hear as much from you these days. And, and really, it, it I have noticed it is harder for me to get through my days. Yeah. It feels like the kids are, are breaking you down one day at a time. But but please tell me that's not the case. A little bit. A little bit. It is a little bit of the case. But it's funny that you notice that because I do feel like I'm more absent with uh, our group text messages and stuff like that. Or I'm very late to get to them because my kids wear me out. And there's not a, there's not a downtime in school uh, this school year. For whatever reason, these kids are wearing on I me. Mean, I, I hate that I keep on complaining about these kids in this school year. Uh, maybe, maybe next year will be a little bit different. But I got to get through this one. 
Uh, it's just hard to relax for one second, and and it kind of you know extends my school day a little bit because I can't get any done anything done during the school day because these kids require my 100% attention. Uh, no independence, no independence whatsoever. So it's nice to have this little distraction here with Buzzbeat, and I can't wait for basketball because that'll be another distraction. So I am doing doing all right. Uh, could be better though. Richie, honest with his uh, state of mind right now with the kids. Hey, we're here for you. Don't forget yeah. that. If you ever need to send like a midday text or even a midday call, we yeah. are here for you, Richie. The, the whole Hornets and Buzzbeat fan base is. Thank you. Thank you. PG, we haven't even arrived at the NBA season yet, which you and I were literally just talking about uh, how much we needed to be here. But the football has been a blast so far. How's everything down the triangle? Everything's good. Um, I just want to say, Richie sounds like Byron Scott coaching the baby Lakers a couple of years ago, man. Just like these, <laughs> these kids, Russell and Randall, they're driving them crazy. Uh, but no, things are things are good in the triangle. Um, you know, I was actually out of town for the first week of college football season. I was up in Chicago visiting a friend, and uh, Chicago was wonderful. By the way, if you ever if I ever disappear for a few days. 33% chance that I've, that I've wandered to Chicago, just FYI, uh, at least while it's warm, that is, but no, everything's good. Football's, uh, you know, in the air, I'll be at the Duke game on Saturday when they take on Baylor. I don't know when we're going to put this, put this, put this out, but I'll be at the Duke Baylor game on Saturday and I'll actually be in Charlotte for the Panthers bills on Sunday too. Yeah. Full weekend of football. Look at that. Exactly. But I'm, but obviously that all that stuff is an accessory. I'm, I'm stoked for hoops to finally come back to. Well, we have got plenty to cover here in this show, despite again, um, what is really a, a, a quiet nature, um, of the NBA calendar year. Just a disclaimer for this part of the episode. Before we recorded this segment and show, we were unsure of Michael Carter Williams injury status. The morning after we recorded Queen city hoops was able to get more information on this injury and can report to you that this procedure was stem cell therapy on his knees and in all likelihood is already back practicing. Even though Carter Williams' status is uncertain and there's been no official word, we treated this segment as if it were the doomsday scenario. So definitely take this for what it's worth, but I feel like we can all be a little bit more optimistic than we were in this segment of the show. Michael Carter Williams' knee procedure is really all we know last week. Um... I, I prefaced it in the opening that it was a little bit mysterious. I, my gut tells me it's just a, a cleanup in his knee. Uh, the mysterious thing I would say about it is that he's never really had um, severe. He, he's never had a severe knee injury. He had a bone bruise that kept him out uh, for about, I don't know, three to four weeks last season with Chicago. But the fact that they're actually doing a procedure on his knee is a little bit perplexing to me since he's never had, or at least as far as I know, uh, in could research, he's never had structural damage on that knee. Um, am I, is that right? Has he BG? No, I, 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 you know what? I did a, did a little bit of research this afternoon myself and no, I didn't see anything other than, you know, was maybe wondering if what happened with that bone bruise could be related to this somehow. Like, you know, you stress one thing by trying to overcompensate for something else, but I don't know, Richie, did you see, uh, did you see anything, uh, injury related for MC, uh, MCW? No, this kind of came out of the blue for me. I've, I've not heard of any injuries to his knee until now. And you kind of wonder if they knew about this when, when they signed him and if that was an issue when we signed him and maybe they looked more into it and they needed to go with this procedure. But yeah, I, I did not know about this, any kind of previous injury history with, uh, Carter Williams. 
that's what makes me the most nervous about this. I mean, they didn't even call it a cleanup, you know, which makes me probably more nervous. They didn't just come out and say, oh, yeah, we were just cleaning it up in his knee, nothing to worry about, because they've been more than willing to say that about Kimba's knee procedures in, in the in, you know in the past year. So it makes me nervous because we're not exactly sure what this is. Um, there's no reason to think it's serious, but that's probably a good transition here. If for some reason, worst case scenario, Michael Carter Williams is out for the first month uh, month and a half of the NBA season for the Hornets. They've got really, really significant um, point guard depth issues right out of the gate because Malik Monk, in all estimation that I can gather, is not going to be ready to start the season. Um, I, I don't know that he'll be ready for game one either. Uh, if Clifford's saying that guy can't even go through a physical workout that's not physically strenuous, uh, and that was just last week as well. So. I mean, really, then it's just Julian Stone. That's all the Hornets have. So you, you got to be concerned, I think, Richie, if you're a Hornets fan right now with, with some of this news. Yeah, I think that if we had Carter Williams out, I think I would prefer to have Monk over Stone. But again, with his conditioning, he needs to get back into game shape. So we're left with Julian Stone. So we really don't have a backup, a true backup point guard, because Stone, to me, is more of an emergency third backup point guard type of guy. Uh, so it kind of feels a lot like last year, where our backup point guard position was just god-awful. So there might be some kind of shifting of rotations, maybe have Batum play with the second unit a little bit more to kind of facilitate the offense. But yeah, we definitely need Monk to get back into game shape. I think that's more important, knowing this injury with Carter Williams. I don't know how much I can trust Stone, but it'll be interesting to see that that 6'5 body kind of work in uh, in that second unit if he does get some play time. Because it seems like if Carter Williams and or Monk is not available, uh, he's definitely going to be suited up. You, know, you guys aren't ready for that Marcus Page call up. Oh, from, forgot uh, about that. Forgot about that. <laughs> I've got it. I've got it noted. I got it in my notes. I was like, oh shit, Marcus Page is going to come up. Like, day uh, one. Jesus. <laughs> but this is why you know we were we were kind of cracking jokes on ourselves. Maybe I don't know four six weeks ago or so because we can't. We had, I think we had two pod podcasts in a row where we talked for an extended period of time both times about the back of the third string point guard spot. And, you know, now and we were kind of wondering why, you know, why Julian Stone was the decision and, you know, a little perplexed by it, too. And, you know, this is why we had those sorts of conversations and why right before free agency started, we all the three of us participated, along with the help of some other uh, QCH people on that post of looking at backup point guard options for the Hornets. This is why it's worth actually investigating into that. You need depth of this position. And yeah, it's certainly a, a, this is a little concerning. Yeah, not a big concern, obviously, but this is definitely a little concerning. Uh, fortunately, the schedule shakes out not too terribly the first like week or two of the season. So even if he wasn't ready game one, like you said, Richie, if they stagger the lines a little bit and use Batum, then they could probably get by. But yeah, it's definitely a concern heading into the season for them. Yeah. You know, so hopefully we don't get any more, um, you know, terrible news about this MCW uh, injury, because if we do, the Hornets are definitely going to start the season in a not so great spot at the point guard position. But Richie, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if, if it is bad and there is going to be significant time missed by Carter Williams, it's going to have to be Batum playing big time minutes uh, throughout the course of a game and big time minutes with the second unit, because I just can't imagine Julian Stone is going to be trusted too much by Cliff right out of the gates. But Brian, great point about, you know, why the Hornets waited as long as they did to make that signing is, and is that 
you know, is that aligned some way with this Mike, Michael Carter Williams injury news? I mean, you know, it's, you start connecting the dots and yeah, we're throwing darts here in the, in, in the dark, but it starts to make a little bit more sense. So let's hope for the best, but it's reason to raise your eyebrow here with this news leaking out. Let's talk about the rotation for a minute. I mean, let's pretend hypothetically that, you know, Carter Williams is out for a month. So the Hornets have to survive a month without him with Kimball Walker, Nick Batum and Julian stone, assuming Malik Monk's probably not going to be ready, at least in the first two weeks of the season to play backup point guard. Not only is he not healthy, he's a rookie. So you really can't expect him to, set the offense up in the first place um so those are your three ball handlers Kemba Batum Julian Stone how do the minutes play out BG my my thing would be I would say you probably want to play Kemba the first nine minutes of the first quarter and before that at around the six minute mark maybe take out Batum early this is this is not too dissimilar from what Clifford's done in the past with Marvin and stuff like that getting that kind of quick early sub and then, you know, maybe try to, you know, then at the nine minute mark, I don't know. It might be tough. Like either do you try to bring Batum back in there and let him play the last three minutes of the first quarter? Or do you use that with the moment when you maybe try to go to Julian Stone or Malik Monk? But again, this is tough because we don't know if Malik Monk's going to be ready. We, don't, we obviously we're not even sure about Michael Carter Williams either, too. So I, you got to find some way to stagger Kemba and Batum. And my thought would be playing Kemba to the nine minute mark taking Batum out early at six, mm-hmm. trying to find some way to bridge the gap of the last three minutes of the first quarter. And certainly at the start of the second quarter, having Batum uh, run the one and stuff like that. But also it's tough too, because you want Nick and Kemba to play a lot together on the court because they're two of the team's best players too. So it's tough. And I think if we're assuming that Monk's not going to be available for a week or two weeks, I think you have to play stone. I don't think there's really any other thing that you can do. And he might come in the last three minutes of the first quarter. Um, and then when it transitions to the second quarter, uh, maybe he doesn't see a lot of minutes and maybe Batum comes back on. And I don't know, it'd be an unconventional lineup, but I, I just, I don't trust Stone enough to have him play major minutes. But if, if we're assuming that Monk is injured and MCW is injured, I feel like Stone's obviously has to play. So, and then, yeah, you're going to mix in, you know, Lamb in the, in the backup with, with Zeller and, and yeah. Kaminsky as well. So, yeah, it'll, it'll just kind of rotate, and I, I think you do have to take out Batum first if this is the if this is the case. And and maybe maybe also too, this is also when you maybe try to utilize Cody. Not obviously not not as the point guard, but <laughs> as a guy that maybe at the elbows you try to run offense through and stuff like that too. Like if you don't have a traditional breakdown point guard in there with the second unit, you got to find other ways to try to juice up the offense, and maybe that's that maybe that's something they can go to. But I mean, we're kind of scraping the barrel here a little bit too. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I mean, I think you're both right, Richie. I think you're right in the sense that you have to play Julian Stone if this hypo, you know hypothetical situation plays out. And I really like Brian's um, you know minutes allocation there with the way you're going to interchange these guys. And um, you know, I tell you what, Julian Stone just to like dig into his game for a minute. Um, not a, not a three point shooter. <laughs> okay, I, I would definitely describe him as a, as a as a setup man, a quarterback. He's a really really good passer from the film I've been able to watch on him has a really good vision of the court sees things that quite frankly, a lot of point guards, even in the NBA backup point guard, mm-hmm. uh, point guards in the NBA don't see on, on a regular basis. I mean, I, I think he has that good a vision, but what that means is like, there are certain players you, you can't put on the court with him. MKG cannot play with him. You know, Jeremy Lamb's going to be a tough fit next to him. You know, it's two uh, guys in the backcourt that, I mean, good luck chucking threes 
Um, so he's a very weird fit on this team that already struggles for shooting, uh, which I thought was a, one of my, uh, one of my confusions about the signing in the first place and why it took so long, but, um, it, it will be very interesting. It would, it would also be very disappointing if the Hornets had to start the season with that kind of backcourt depth. Um, because there's a lot of, there are a lot of things to be excited about with this Hornets team. And, and if this, uh, if this injury news early in the season comes to fruition, that's really gonna, that's really gonna hurt this team's chances out of the gates. Um, anything else on this guys, did we leave anything out that we want to mention? No, I mean, the you, one thing, the, Oh, my, my bad, Richie. The one thing I would add is they start the first, First four games of the season at Detroit, taking on Atlanta, at Milwaukee, and, and then home to Denver. You maybe you think just if, if you're just trying to buy yourself a little bit of time, you know, I know Detroit thinks they might be a playoff team in the East, but I think Charlotte's better than them, and uh, the Hawks are basically <laughs> tanking this year. So you've at least bought yourself an extra week, perhaps, where you can maybe still win two of those games before getting on to teams like the Bucks and the Nuggets, which we assume our playoff teams in both their respective conferences too. So it's interesting. We'll see how that plays out though. Richie, were you going to throw something out I was there? just going to ask, do you think that they would rush Monk back if, if Carter Williams, you know, was not healthy? I mean, would we rush and not game fit Monk back or do you think we would just, you know, rest him a little bit? No, I, I would be very surprised if they rush anything with Monk. I mean, I think the Hornets are super psyched about him and, um, you know, I think the Hornets are also aware when this is that off the beaten path thing we were talking about, I, I prefaced earlier in the opening is that they know that Monk doesn't want to be in Charlotte, right? Like the front office knows that they got to prove it to this guy. So in you know three years from now, it's, it's looking way down the road. Like here's a guy who wanted to be in New York. Yes. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Now they didn't draft him, but like he on his radar going into draft night, Charlotte, I don't think they were on it. I really don't. And I think he wishes he was other places. The team, the franchise has to, they have to teach him how to love being here, right? And I think, you know, risking his body in a way like this as a rookie would be step one to the, the wrong way to go about it. Um, but, yeah, no, I would be shocked if they rushed anything with Monk, especially in his first year. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, agree. I agree completely. Yeah, it, it makes no sense to, to sprint him back. Topic number two here, and this should be a fun one. I, I mean, look. I'm not, and we've said it, I've said it in the past, you know, on this show, I'm not a big like Jersey, you know, shoes, what you're wearing kind of guy. I'm more into what's going on on the court, but I thought the Hornets did an awesome job yesterday with their unveiling of the classic uni. Uh, it has some very distinct differences from the original, mm-hmm. um, but I like it a lot. I think the Hornets did a nice job of combining a classic uniform with a modern twist to it. Um, you know, the two colored lines that run the pinstripe lines that run down vertically across the Jersey, they're a little thicker. The right. color is a little bit more obvious, which I really like. It's a little bit awkward in the back where the, you know, the, the shoulder sleeve kind of cuts off and the, the design changes, you know, it, it is, but like, whatever, I, I'm not, I think they did a nice job. I really did. And I also, and then I'm going to pass it on to you guys. I think they did a great job with that promotional video. I didn't like the, the the narrator, but you know I get it. They're trying to combine the Jordan brand and combine a classic Hornets nostalgia brand that still exists in the city of Charlotte. You know, it, it exists in, in pockets, but they're trying to combine those two things in a marketing effort. And I can imagine that's a very difficult um, goal to accomplish. So I, I thought they did a nice job. I agree. I mean, I, I love the uniforms, love the pinstripes. 
Um, I will say this might be an unpopular um, opinion, but I don't know if you guys remember, but I actually like the the purple unis with the pinstripes. They weren't very common. I felt like they almost wore them as an alternate uh, back in the day, uh, but de- definitely the uh, the teal ones were more common, and it was probably was their primary road jerseys. But they had a purple one ca- that came out for a while. I was almost hoping that that would come out, but yeah, it is interesting, like you said, Spencer. The the new cut of the Nike uniforms, the way that the back looks, it's interesting. The pinstripes don't even line up with the, the shoulders and stuff like that. But I, I thought they did a great job with the promotion. Uh, it wasn't another, you know, another dud where they kind of hyped up the uniform just for it to be a a different one. But I, I think we all knew that these uh, these pinstripes were coming back. Uh, I will say that they're only wearing these three times this year. The first one comes November 15th against the Cavaliers, and then we have a couple more uh, in December and January, but they're going to try to promote them next year when it's the uh, the 30th anniversary. But I thought they did a great job. Love them. Uh, but again, I think I, I like the purple pinstripe jerseys over these teal ones. But again, very nostalgic. I love it. Yeah, I think anytime you can hit on nostalgia, it with like a touch of modernity. That's always a good look. I would also just like to add, uh, I want to buy a pair of these shorts really bad. Like <laughs> I want true. a pair of the shorts. That's true. I, want, I don't, they're, they're probably too expensive, but I want a pair of those. But uh, also just one more thing too. Like you guys said, they did a great job kind of rolling this out on Twitter and stuff like that. They got a lot of positive buzz, uh, pardon the <laughs> no pun intended there. But, and I really do think though, that this is one of these sort of like downstream, benefits they wanted from the rebranding effort which came a little over three years ago this is the sort of stuff they wanted to be able to do and they can do it now rebranded as the hornets since july 2014 so i think for them you're we're still kind of seeing these smaller auxiliary benefits of the rebrand effort from three years ago which was obviously set in motion even before that too mm-hmm. so just just kind of wanted to touch on that real quickly i'm sure they had to be pleased it's not it's not it's rare when I get to see in my Twitter feed, which is NBA and college sports, basically in the state of North Carolina and see them talking about the same thing. That doesn't happen that often. That was the case yesterday, or which I should say Wednesday afternoon when they rolled these out. So kudos to them. Uh, they, they won the afternoon or morning or whatever that time slot was on Twitter. Are yeah, we the only team? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Are we the only team to have a, a retro jersey that's been released yet? I mean, I know there might be others coming, but are, have there ever been any other ones? I don't. I can't remember. At least out now, I'm sure there's more coming, but I can't remember of any other team that's released it. I don't think we're the. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's good. that's a good question, sure. actually. I'm not um, sure. Yeah, not not sure, but uh, I mean, I know other teams have released their. Their alternate uniforms, right, yeah, which right. is basically what this is for us. But I'm not sure that anyone else has released their classic. Right. Um, but you know, it was interesting. I thought that the Hornets. I wonder <clears throat> if they actually intended to release them on Wednesday because that video game actually leaked all of the oh, alternate yeah. <laughs> jerseys. Uh, for a lot of the teams, right. I don't know. Was it 2K? I don't even know what the video game was, but it leaked the same day. All the alternate jerseys, so it leaked for the Hornets. Actually, the purple one that says Charlotte. So not the not this one we saw on Wednesday. But I thought it was interesting that maybe the team panics and said, "Oh shit, maybe we should go ahead and put this out there today, so people don't think that oh we're not coming back with the classic." You right. know what I mean? Because on the video game it was the purple one that they showed for Charlotte. So, and that's another point. We also know what the Hornets fourth Jersey is going to be. And there's a fifth (laughs) one coming too, which will probably be a black one. So, I mean, it won't be sleeved. I think they're doing away with the sleeves, which I I hate. I hate those sleeve jerseys. I don't, I I don't know if I can even play in a sleeve Jersey. 
Those are those are the Saturday night in Uptown jerseys. As uh, I'm dropping an Eric Collins reference on every Buzzbeat episode from here until the end of time, man. I'm doing this on every episode because I love Eric Collins and uh, he's a joy. But yeah, he always refers to those as the Saturday night in Uptown jerseys. So uh, I actually don't, I actually don't hate those. But yeah, I don't think I could actually play in sleeves myself. Personally. We're talking about the, oh the Buzz City ones, yeah, yeah, Buzz yeah, City. yeah. Yeah, so wait, wait. Those are back for what one more year, and then they're going away. Oh, I There's don't something. Know. I don't know. Mm, I'm not so. I don't know. I, I don't keep up with this stuff as much as uh, me either. Should or would like to. I, I, I think they're eventually going away. I think I've seen something about that. But anyways, um, that's probably our cue to go ahead and get off this topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brian BG did a great uh, MKG player forecast. By the way, we've got the player forecast series going on in queen city hoops right now for every single player on the roster we'll probably we'll wrap that up somewhere in the middle of training camp i would imagine but anyways brian did a great one for michael kid gilchrist yesterday took a deep uh, numbers dive what brian does best uh in his piece that, that was extensive it's a must read if you want to know where mkg's game has been where it's evolved to where it's going hopefully you know i think that, that brian's piece really shed a good light on that so i'm just going to throw it to brian with that uh, just kind of introduce the piece. What are the, some of the things you found? Give us some talking points here. Yeah, just I'll, I'll go ahead and just jump right in. I, I do find I do think MKG is kind of the most polarizing player on the roster mm-hmm. amongst the kind of the Hornet fan base, which is people. You kind of I think everyone likes MKG, and I think sometimes that either clouds people's judgment into maybe overvaluating him, or some people just don't like his game, and so they kind of also look past some of the positives he brings, of which there are a lot. He means he's definitely he's a very good player. He's just he's just kind of limited, and I think the thing to always remember with him is I think he's he's marketed as this star defender. He's a very very good defender. He's one of the best perimeter defenders in the entire NBA. But, you know, he's not Kawhi Leonard. He, he's not uh, Andre Roberson for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He's a very, very good player. Charlotte plays like a top five defense or a top ten defense with him on the court. And without him, they give up 110 points per 100 possessions, which would be the worst defense in the entire NBA. So he's very critical uh, to the defense, even though, and I know, Richie, I've heard you point this out before, he has a tendency off the ball sometimes to get get sucked into the paint when he's yeah. guarding weak side, and sometimes he can give up shooters with skips and passes over the top. He's not he's not a perfect defender. I think what's also good to remember with him, too, is he's still just 23. I mean, he's going to turn 24 in like 10 days or something like that, but he's he should theoretically be getting better at the same point in time while I think we're all we all know he's going to get better. And while we're, we all would love to see the shot, like the shots, just I just don't think it's going to come. And even if he became a much better mid-range shooter than he is, and he's he's a pretty good pull-up shooter. I think I found, yeah, on pull-up jump shots last season, MKG shot 59%, which is, which is pretty darn good. But that's also when he's wide open, he has mm-hmm. time to take a dribble or two, get to his you know, 14 feet from the hoop or whatever, and rise up and pull it. And ultimately, from the mid-range which is kind of this area that we've talked a lot about as being his preferred area. You know, he's, he's really, he's really was not so good. He shot 37%, 15, 19 feet from the hoop and just four of 16, 25% along twos. That's between 20 feet and the three point line. And so as much as I love MKG and it's cool that we have these defensive numbers and these hustle metrics that you should, you guys should go check out the piece because they're all in there. 
that we can we can use to evaluate just how much of an impact this guy has defensively. Like there's quantifiable stuff that proves that this guy's a very very good player, but it just it's tough what he does to the offense too. And he becomes a ghost in the fourth quarter. And that's not just because of Clifford's substitution patterns. Even when he's out there, right. he basically doesn't touch the ball. Um, but there are all some things he can do offensively as far as a cutter, as far as looking for early offense and transition that, you know, maybe if they could push him, they could work towards that a little bit more then maybe we could make MKG a more capable offensive player. It's just sometimes as much as I love Mike and he's the heart and soul of the team, you sometimes you wish they could have a guy like Courtney Lee that would just stand in a corner and shoot catch and shoot threes because you saw how good the offense was with uh, with Courtney Lee along with Kemba, Batum. Zeller and Marvin and that was two years ago when Kemba isn't the player that he is now too so it, it's tough I'll, I guess I'll just kind of open it up what are you what are y'all's thoughts on MKG heading into I mean it's crazy that this is going to be a sixth year in the NBA too um, but yeah you know here we are he's not even 24 years old too yeah I think it really just comes down to expectations I think a lot of people think that he is this lockdown defender like you talked about Brian I mean he's a very good defender um, and I think that people underestimate how good he is on defense. But I also think people get upset about the fact because they think he should be the Andre Roberson of our team. And, and he does have some letdowns on, on that end. So I think really it comes to expectations. I mean, yes, he was a high draft pick. and We probably should expect more out of out of a high draft pick like that. What was he, the third overall pick? Second. Second overall Second. pick. Um, yeah. I, I, I wanted Beal in that draft. But anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just comes down to expectations. I think, you know, the expectation for this guy, he's going to be a hustle, gritty guy. He's the glue guy for the starting five. Um, he's going to hold his own on defense. He's going to be very scrappy on, on that end, snag rebounds, dive after loose balls, uh, things of that nature. I think the biggest expectation in my eyes, I think he needs to prove in that mid-range game. I think he's not ever going to stretch it out to the three-point line. And I don't really sh- – think you should have gotten that feeling after watching him at Kentucky I mean that that was not his game so I don't I'm not sure why we think that he should be hitting these threes other than the fact that he hit seven threes in seven games two years ago um, I mean I, I don't think that's a big sample size there so um, yeah his mid-range game uh, definitely needs some improvement I do know that you know during the new year like right after January I felt like he had a stretch of games where he actually shot the ball from from uh you know pretty well from mid-range and I actually had to look it up it wasn't necessarily January but February and March he he shot the ball 43 percent uh from that area in the mid-range and I, I think if he could be more consistent because I think you said was at 38 percent from that 37 percent from the mid-range if he can get Getting it up above 40 go yeah ahead. I agree north yeah. of 40 and then like we can we can we can live with that a little bit more I think offensively right so I again I mean I, I think it does come down to expectations he is pretty much a nothing on offense besides cuts and, and getting out in transition and things like that. But uh, I just expect him to be this glue guy for the starting five, snag rebounds, play good defense. Um, we should never expect him to shoot threes. Never. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that's just going to set you up for disappointment. So I don't know how much more time we have with him, though. Like, I don't know exactly where people are, are getting with with him on, on the patience with him, but I'm fine with him. Um, just don't expect him to play in big minutes. It was a great piece, Brian. I, I mean, I thought you did a good, a great job with, you know, pointing out the numbers, especially the shooting numbers, which is everybody gravitates to the most when it comes to MKG. Um, I think you're very fair in saying that you, you don't ever really expect a three point shooter. I think that's what everyone should realistically uh, expect or not expect. But 
you know, knowing this fan base, they're going to keep dreaming of the day that it actually happens and comes. Um, a few things I jotted down, like a few questions that I, I want to throw out that I, that I think about when I think of this new roster that MKG is a part of, and really Dwight Howard is the main component of some of the changes that I think could really benefit MKG if Steve Clifford is more willing to uh, change his coaching ways, his philosophy, maybe not severely, but a little bit. They can make a big difference in utilizing a guy like Michael K. Gilchrist. You know, the first thing I thought of, does Dwight Howard uh, unlock more of MKG's capabilities as a wing defender, right? So you talked about it in the piece, and you talked about it just a second ago when you were introducing the piece on the show, is you know he overhelps a lot. I mean, he feels like he always has to be the defensive anchor, and probably rightfully so. Number one, on this roster, or, or on the roster constructed before Dwight came, he really was the defensive anchor. He needed to be that guy. There was no true rim protector, you know. So, so I think Michael K. Gilchrist was tagged with that responsibility. He shouldn't feel that now, right? Like he should feel like I've got more help behind me. Dwight Howard's back there. Uh, Dwight Howard's second, you know, backup is Cody Zeller. Like I should feel like I can truly be a wing defender, guard the ball as hard as I can guard it, get in passing lanes, not feel like I need to be on the helpline every single time. The ball's on the other side of the floor. You know, these types of things are the things that have burned MKG uh, defensively. And now he should feel less like he should have to be that guy, right? And just be the best wing defender and on-ball defender on this team, which I think he's considered himself to be. But when I watch MKG defensively in his first five years in the league, I see a guy who's trying to do everything. He's trying to collectively connect every single dot defensively on the floor. And it's really at the cost of the team's defensive effort, if that makes sense. So that's, that's the first thing I jotted down is, you know, I think Dwight can really help him become a more uh, effective and efficient defensive player and be that lockdown wing defender that he was, you know, he was, he was said to be from the very beginning and, and really has improved to be, as you pointed out in the piece, Brian. And then the second thing, you know, I think is, on the offensive glass, you know, he's a good offensive rebounder. You pointed that out, Brian, in the piece. Now that you have Dwight Howard, will Clifford make an adjustment and say, okay, every now and then, or 50% of the time, or whatever it is, he allocates towards offensive rebounding. Will he send two there now? Especially yeah. when Dwight and MKG are on the floor together. Dwight and Michael, Kil- Michael Kidd Gilchrist crashing the offensive glass, that's that's a tough assignment yeah. for any you know, for any team trying to get a defensive rebound, you know, that there's a possible strength in this team coming next year in a way you can use Michael K. Gilchrist's uh, uh, strengths as a player. And then the other, the other thing is now that you have Dwight there in the back, when they're on the floor together, do you send MKG to the defensive glass less mm-hmm. and say, look, mm-hmm. I know we're all about cleaning up the defensive glass, but let that guy get out and transition yes. more like catch it pitch it to Kemba up the floor. And now all of a sudden the Hornets are creating two to three to four more transition opportunities in a game. And they go from what? 97, 98 possessions a game to 102. And all of a sudden are in the top 10 in pace. It's those kinds of things that I think can be unlocked. And, and I didn't really talk about this new roster. I really just talked about how Michael K. Gilchrist fits around Dwight Howard, but do some of those examples make sense to you guys? And is it a way that, a perplexing player like MKG can improve with this new team. 
Yeah, I would agree, especially that last point when you were talking about you know sending MKG up the court instead of crashing the defensive rebounds. Because you can look at it one way. You, you can see the addition of Dwight almost makes, I wouldn't say MKG useless, but like a lot of what MKG does on defense, you'll see the same things with Dwight, you know, defending the rim, getting defensive rebounds, and really that's why MKG is there, but maybe it will unlock him more in the transition game, and and maybe he gets out in transition a little bit more. I don't know, him him and Dwight intrigue me on the defensive end, but obviously on the offensive end, it kind of makes me a little bit hesitant and kind of how they're going to play together and like Brian was saying you almost wish you had someone got someone that just stood in the corner and shot threes and was pretty decent on defense like like Courtney Lee so it's one of those things where together they're on defense uh, they could be a real power uh, but on offense I feel like it could kind of clog the lanes a little bit more for MKG but if he gets up in transition and uh, and kind of utilizes kind of getting up in the secondary a little bit more uh, and let Dwight get the rebounds, I can see where that could be effective. Yeah, I, I think you, I, I had this in the piece too. He shot 66% in transition. You know, everyone shoots a higher number in transition, but he had a higher offensive efficiency in transition than Clay Thompson and Andre Iguodala. Like when he doesn't run a lot, but when he does get out and run, Michael Kikilkers can be a pretty darn good score. That's where he gets some of his best offense. It's basically there on cuts or the offensive glass, the, the, those are the sources of it. You know, obviously the occasional mid-range shot, which he makes basically mm-hmm. one of those games, whatever. What I also like in, in Spencer, this was the second point, where he, the thought of having to box out both he and Dwight offensively. Jeff Van Gunny made this point during the, I think it was during the playoffs. I can't remember if it was during a game or he, he did a podcast with Zach Lowe, something like that. But I, I want to give him this, where he was basically saying, because he was talking about uh, Steven Adams and Ennis Cantor, and he was saying, well, maybe the new market inefficiency in the NBA is 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 offensive rebounding because yep. for so long people have just punted on and they've just said, no, nah, we're going to get dudes back on defense. We're going to wall off the rim, try to get out on shooters, whatever. But if you could do that, you know, with Howard and Mike, but not have to play traditional bigs. Now that's kind of something right now. You're not yeah. having to play Ennis Cantor and Steven Adams, two seven footers or near seven footers. You're going to do it with a one seven footer and with a small forward, or if you're playing MKG as a small ball four, which maybe we'll see that more this year. We saw that a little bit last year, and I, was, I mean, like the the thought of MKG and Howard as the four five, like it still makes the spacing a little weird, unless the other three guys are Kemba Batum and you know maybe Malik Monk or something like that later in the season if he proves to be a capable shooter and playmaker as well. So I, I think it's great if you, if you can get out and run with MKG. I think if you can push the pace a little bit more, that's great. If you can find easy ways to get this guy buckets, that's great too. And and like you said, if he doesn't, he try, like he plays so hard and he's trying to do so much. Maybe if he can just ease the foot off the gas a little bit, I mean, he's still going to play hard as hell all the time. He's yeah. the only has one gear. But it'll be interesting to see if if, if MKG can play the game. Like, him not having to do everything defensively and quarterback this defense how that might make him even better by having to do a little bit less too so i'm i I think the the connection with both he and howard on both ends of the court it's an interesting even though maybe on the surface we're hesitant to watch those guys play too much together just because of how it might kind of clog the offense a little bit too you know i I think this is a super interesting conversation because you know what we're talking about with this mkg dwight um, duo component, how it's so confusing in some ways of how these guys will play together on the floor, but how it's also so fascinating how it could work. And 
Brian, to your point, and I remember the exact podcast you're talking about. And I remember thinking like, duh, of course, like, so everyone's doing one thing, like where, where the opportunity is, is trying the other thing. Yep. Like, because, you know, and, and you're exactly right. You're not having to put two bigs on the floor if Clifford was willing to try it with MKG and Dwight on the offensive glass, which leads me, you know, kind of to my second point in a coaching you know, in a coach's mind, uh, when you go into a situation, high school, college, pros, you have to instill your culture, right? Like that's your first thought. You're not, you're not thinking about trying all these new creative things. You're thinking about, here's what I want to do. I got to instill this. I, we're going to have to rep this out day after day mm-hmm. after day mm-hmm. after day. Clifford has done that. We have a culture in Charlotte there's a little bit of like back against the wall narrative with this team right now. Like now is the time if I'm Steve Clifford to try some things that maybe aren't in my um, coaching philosophy book, right? Like now's the time to roll the dice a little bit in this offensive glass thing with every single time MKG and Dwight are on the floor. You two are going to the glass. We're going to beat teams up. We're going to try it. If it fails, F it. I don't care. Like this is what we're doing. Like we're going to throw, we're going to roll the dice a little bit. And like now's the time to try that. And you always have the culture to fall back on too if it doesn't work, right? Like if you try this and it's a flop, then at least there's the other stuff that you've been doing the last four years that you can at least know we're not rudderless. Like there is there is a structure, there's an organization here that we can at least fall back on if this for whatever reason didn't work too. I, I just don't know if Clifford would do it because he, I feel like he is kind of stuck in his ways with his philosophies and, you know, crashing the offensive boards has never been one of his philosophies. I think a lot of it leads to defense because he wants to get back on defense. It's not necessarily not crashing the offensive boards. It's it's his defensive minded, you know, approach that we got to get back on defense and get set. And it kind of goes back to your original point, Spencer, where you're talking about, you know, MKG over helping. Is that MKG or is that Clifford? You know what I mean? So, like, well, where is that philosophy yeah, no, no, coming I think from? No, exactly. No, 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 exactly. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think it's Clifford's philosophy that is a little bit of an overhelp scheme defensively. And I also think, you know, it's Clifford telling MKG, you're responsible in the defensive end. You're the guy. You're the quarterback. If anything goes right. wrong defensively, it's on you. So him, you know, it's it's Clifford's philosophy combined with this mentality of MKG thinking I have to do everything defensively that has – not backfired, but it, it has played a hand in affecting what MKG can be defensively. As a we've we've always wanted to label him a wing stopper, right? Like one of the elite wing stoppers in the NBA. Name me another true wing stopper in the NBA that's the quarterback of his defense. Go do their research. They don't exist very often. They're actually allowed to just stop the ball and be the guy who doesn't ever get beat because they have the energy to do that. When you're asked to do everything defensively, rebound, block shots, be in help, guard on the wing, you can't be that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, so like having Dwight to me hopefully allows him mm-hmm. to see himself as more as that. But anyway, I think we've had on some really good stuff here, by the yeah. way. Like, I, 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 yeah, I, I agree. I also say this too, you know, of any of the head coaches in the NBA right now, there might be one guy, but Clifford is at the top of the list. Like he is the product of the Van Gundy school of basketball. So if Jeff Van Gundy's thinking this, That's like true. I don't think Steve Clifford is too far away from thinking like, Hey, maybe this is an option too. And in fact, I actually think Clifford, you know, Van Gundy was coaching that one USA basketball team this summer too. And I, I pretty sure Clifford was not an assistant, but he was sitting in on practices and stuff like that too. So again, I doubt they discussed this thing, but 
I think Clifford's shown the ability to at least tweak the offense. And Richie, you're right. He's definitely been more resistant to change the defensive structure and stuff like that. But I think especially if he sees the ways that, you know, they gave up more threes than anybody in the league last year. Like, I think he has to know that he needs to rework things a little bit too. Um, and, and maybe just Dwight's the solvent to that or the solution or whatever. But I think if Van Gundy's thinking this, it's not too far from Clifford either too. But I also wonder, like, we had Cody last year. I feel like he he was he might have led our team in offensive rebounds. So I just wonder why they didn't crash him more often or with in tandem yeah. with MKG. So I feel like yeah. I think he actually led it over MKG in offensive rebounds based off my memory. But I could be wrong. But, you know, if he did, yeah. maybe, maybe he's willing to change now that he has Dwight. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, don't forget this whole idea about sending both of them to the offensive glass and trying to survive behind that. You know, because you're only – you send MKG, you send Dwight to the offensive glass – realistically you're only going to hit 30 percent ish yeah like probably at your ceiling yeah if you're lucky you know of those opportunities so the large majority of the time you're going to have to survive with those other three guys uh defensively for a you know what two and a half to three seconds four seconds um and then you have marvin williams back there was my original point here is who led the team in blocks last season right so it's not like you're you're dealing with like um, Kimba Monk and Julian Stone, you know, or right. Nick Batum, you right. know, be the last three of defense. Like mm-hmm. you actually have a guy back there who I think some consider one of our better defenders over the past yeah. few seasons. So, it, it you know, I, Steve Clifford, you won't listen to this. No one in the Hornets organization will probably listen to this. But like, this is something you guys should really think about. It re- I mean, it really is. And um, you, you gotta if you're the Hornets now again. You got to roll the dice a little bit. You got to live on the fringe a little bit more than I think um, th- th- this team, coaching wise, franchise wise, front office wise, has in the past. If you're willing to roll the dice on trading for Dwight Howard, then why the hell not would you be willing to try something like this or, or whatever it is? But trying something creative and new is something that probably has a low success rate, but is also something that could put a team like Charlotte over the top next season and really help them max out their potential. So we'll see Brian. Great job on that uh, MKG piece. And you've got, you're doing another one, right? Kaminsky baby. Comment. Oh, I can't Kaminsky, wait. Yeah. I cannot wait for that one. Yeah. That's going to be, another, I actually <laughs> like to admit first thing I said, which was that I think MKG might be the most polarizing player on the Hornets roster. Kaminsky right got there. It. Yeah, maybe maybe it's convincing, or maybe people are pulled in one side here of more than the other. I, I don't know. We'll see. But uh, yeah, Frank Kaminsky. I think that's the twenty third or the twenty fourth. I'll have to double check though. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for that one. That'll be good. This time next year, we'll be debating about whether uh, the Hornets should extend Frank Kaminsky yeah, or not. Exactly, yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So, anything else on MKG? I think we had some really good discussion. My, my question to Brian is when he signed up for MKG, did he think he was signing up for Kid Gilchrist or Carter Williams when he was signing up? For <laughs> I think, I, I think I like what's funny is like, uh, yeah, I met that first time it's been in my head, but even now, even when, when Spencer was introducing Carter Williams earlier and he said MCW, I was like, wait, did he say MKG? So I've got, <laughs> Guys, I break it to you. I think this might be a year-long adventure with me in um, you know three-letter uh, initials and stuff like that. I have to call him Carter Williams. Have to call him Carter Williams. I can't go it's, the initials. Uh, it's got to happen. It's got to happen. All right. So a few more things uh, that we wanted to hit on while we're on it. I mean, let's say so. Kimball was ranked what 29th? Yeah, Sports Illustrated had him 29th. ESPN had him 34th. 
Um, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So Sports Illustrated had him better than DeRozan, uh, worse than Kevin Love, also run down. There were four other Hornets mentioned in Sports Illustrated's top 100 list. Marvin Williams, 89. Dwight Howard, 73. Cody, 70. Nick Batum, 48. And no Michael Kidd-Gilchrist in that, in that mix there. But yeah, those were the likely the... Uh, I guess the you know the starting like four mm-hmm. four fifths of the five and the six man for the Hornets made the their top one hundred list. I'm not sure about the how, where those other guys landed on ESPN though. So wow, Nick Batum forty eight. Wow. Yeah, that that's that's high to me. Maybe yeah, I thought, I thought, that's a, I thought that's a, really high to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, Cody Zeller is probably a better player than him, but you know he was late labeled twenty two spots behind him, but. I don't know, but Doom, I guess you know if you label him a shooting guard, he's playing in a position maybe where there's less, there's just less talent overall or whatever. But uh, I don't know, forty eight seemed thought anywhere in the top fifty for Nick Batum, who I I really like as a player and stuff. It, it did seem a little high. He's another polarizing player on our team. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Especially after last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true. yeah, it's true. Yeah, we're, we're everyone's cool with with Kemba, Kemba. and Martin. And Cody, no one, everyone else. It's a toss up. I feel like, I guess I have not. Uh, yeah. I haven't really looked at the, the rank stuff very much. The, the thing I found most comical, totally non Hornets related was, um, the fact that Carmelo Anthony was ranked behind Lonzo ball. I think was, that was ESPN, right? I think had so. Yeah. 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 yeah like, exactly. So, had to be. No problem with Carmelo being ranked 64th. Or whatever. I mean, like being in the sixties, but it's ridiculous if Lonzo is one of the guys. Like the guy we we don't even know if he can play and we think he can. He's probably will be good, but it just didn't it didn't make that didn't make unbelievable. Yeah. Carmelo's obviously gonna have an awesome season now. (laughs) Give him all the fuel that guy needed. I hope he ends Uh, up Houston, man. I just hope he ends up I don't think it's gonna I I don't know how it's gonna happen. Doesn't seem like it's gonna be a trade. Maybe it's like a buyout or whatever, but Man, I hope he ends up in Houston on a team that actually matters next season. So we'll see. Um, we're going to look at – we're going to have a, some lottery reform talk here real quick. So it sounds like um, the NBA competition committee that's basically comprised of general managers. Um, I don't know if that's like only GMs. It's probably assistant GMs and all that as well. Um, comprised of GMs and coaches have basically <clears> – <throat> it sounds like according to Wood Janarski's uh, piece earlier in the week that they have a plan that they're going to present to the NBA Board of Governors next week uh, that it will probably voted on be voted on in late September. So, guys, I'm just going to kind of run down some of the bullet points here real quick, and then we can discuss them a little bit. But some of the bullet points are the proposed three worst records in the NBA um, would effectively have the same odds of landing the number one pick. I think right now the worst record as right now is the lottery set up, uh, the, the worst record has like a 25% chance. The second worst record somewhere around 19. And then the third worst is like 15 and a half or something. So that's a significant change. Um, you know, outside of that, I thought there were things that were interesting. It's basically, they're going to just shrink, uh, the odds, for teams that are in the lottery, especially teams in the top seven, um, you know, and, and pretty make it make it more of a level playing scale when it comes to odds from one to fourteen. Every team that is in the lottery, I don't know, and we can go in this into this a little bit more in a minute. I don't know that this solves <laughs> all the tanking issues that the NBA would like to solve. And Adam Silver is pretty adamant that he wants to solve these tanking issues, and I think he's 
I think he's right in that uh, in that vision. But this lottery reform is just a step in that process. This certainly will not fix everything. And by the way, if the, what the NBA Competition Committee uh, gives to the NBA Board of Governors to vote on, if it is approved and passed, it is probably going to take effect as early as the 2019 draft. So this is not something that's going to be way in the future. This is something that's going to affect the NBA uh, really starting now. Uh, teams have to, you know, start building their seasons and thinking about what they're going to, you know, the moves they make and how many games they want to win. All this stuff that goes in to preparing for a season, it starts now. Um, thoughts, reactions, Brian, we'll throw it to you first. Yeah, well, you know, this is something that Silver had tried pushing through in 2014 and it didn't work. This is sort of a kind of a watered down version of that. And uh, that that vote actually passed. Uh, well, it didn't pass, but it actually got a majority of votes on the board board of governors 17 to 13 but you need 23 yes votes two-thirds for it to pass it did not get that but under that proposal from three years ago the worst record for instance could have fallen to seventh the second worst record could have fallen to eighth so this is not quite as uh just like a little less variance essentially in this um you know as far as tanking i'll be totally honest with you it doesn't really bother me to begin with. I mean, I know it makes for some ugly basketball sometimes, but you know, I, it, it's just, it's a part of team building. And, and we all, at, at this point, I think we all kind of accept that this is, these are the rules. And if you have a reverse order draft and if you have stuff like restricted free agency, the best way towards building a title contender, what's a title contender? Well, it's winning 55 games being top 10 in offense and top 10 in defense. And the best way towards building a team like that is by going and getting very is by getting top 10 top 20 players and you need high lottery picks to usually do that that's clearly the best way to go about doing this and so unless that radically changes the the way we go about with you know guys having rookie contracts for four years or six free agency stuff like that like this is essentially just uh, people, too many other people have used this analogy but like it's a you're putting a band-aid on a gash base so this is something that could have an impact on you know how team maybe not teams with the four worst records but teams that are between records five of the the fifth worst record in the league and the tenth worst record in the league that would maybe be contending for a playoff spot or whatever so you know i'm not totally upset with the current system that's in place it is what it is i definitely don't think this is going to solve what is kind of a backward system but you know this is the way it is teams are incentivized to lose if they want to get high draft picks that's just the name of the game you know that. <laughs> the biggest thing that stood out to me when I started, you know, reading this and, and, and thinking about this component, you know, piece uh, of the larger tree, Brian, that you alluded to, that Zach Lowe also alluded to of, of the larger NBA is that, you know, the, adjusting the NBA lottery in the way that they want to do it. Yes, this will it, it will help certain parts of it. I mean, leveling out. Uh, or shrinking rather the percentages of the lottery teams is in a way, going to de uh, it would de-emphasize the importance um, of tanking for teams. But you know, I really think the larger problem, and and Lowe really talked about this on the Woj Pod earlier in the week, um, and he got me thinking. I mean, God, that guy is the best in the game. But it's, it's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous how how good he is. I mean, we all dream of being <laughs> as good as he is when it comes to covering the NBA, but. It, I think where the larger issue lies is in restricted free agency. And the first part of that is this. The NBA has 
gradually become one of the most popular global uh, prof- sports professions, which means that the stars of that sport profession uh, have the best brands in the entire world. I mean, I think you've seen that from NBA players. So, which means that when a, when an NBA player is truly a star and in the prime of his career, um, he's going to go to a place that allows him to capitalize and maximize his brand value. Okay, because it's it's the name of the game, especially when you're playing a sport that's one of the most popular in the world and most one of the most recognizable. Um, so, there is no fixing stars not wanting to go to the biggest markets and like there's no fixing that like as long as the nba is accomplishing their mission of being one of the most popular sports in the world then the best players are going to go to the biggest markets or a better way to put it the markets that are going to capitalize on their brand it's just the way it is okay You, you might have once in once a splash in the bucket you might have a guy who's just you know, just so true to himself and, and just so true to a place that he'll want to go there, but it's not going to have it often. Now, where can smaller markets capitalize in the free agency um, Ferris wheel and in the free agency ev- uh, time frame? And I think that is restricted free agency. Where does restricted free agency come up the most? At the end of rookie scale contracts. I mean, we're in that right now. So guys that are going on their final year of the rookie scale contract are eligible to be extended. So if you got rid of restricted free agency or maybe not even got rid of it, but at least, you know, maybe, maybe you, maybe you followed something like the NFL does with like the franchise tag where you're not, you're, you're getting a guy for one more year if you're not willing to extend it. But after that, he is an unrestricted free agent and he's on the market. Like that brings, that brings teams like the Hornets into the play. I mean, that's the reason they were able to sign Gordon Hayward to a qualifying offer, right? Mm -hmm. Like exactly. that's the reason they almost had Gordon Hayward and the jazz had to match it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, tweaking with the restricted free agent process, I think opens up those pre star players that haven't hit stardom yet. And a handful of them will, but a handful of them won't when they're all in that pre star bucket, you know, that allows all 30 teams in the NBA to have a fair chance of getting one of those players and if you're a Charlotte and you do get that Gordon Hayward and then five or three years later, he becomes that, that real star. Well, now we have the designated player extension the NBA's put in and say he makes one or two all-star teams. Now you can lock him in for that mega extension. And now the system is starting to kind of accomplish what it wants to, if that makes that's, sense. That's a great, that's a, that, that point is was literally what I was just about to say, which is that, you know, the new CBA it you know it further emphasized the importance of drafting star players. It, it's it's only incentivized tanking even you know even more basically. So it's uh you know it's it's kind of it, it's a weird sort of juxtaposition between what the new the league's new collective bargaining agreement is and what these new um, you know draft rules might end up being. Um, so, you, you know I don't know you're trying to find ways to facilitate player movement and it, it just changing the odds at the top of the, of the lottery, it doesn't, it's just, it does, it's just, it's not going to only do, but so much. So, um, you know, we'll see if they, if there are stuff that happens later down the road that changes things, but for the time being, this isn't going to solve teams are still going to tank. Mm-hmm. Um, what well, the point that should be made, and this is something that low and Woj hammered home on that pod too, is that some of the new rest rules that have been put in place, that might help some of the, that might help this out a little bit too, at least on like on an, on an indirect sort of level as well. So, 
Um, you know, but as far as this goes, I'm, I'm, this doesn't matter to me one way or the other. It will be interesting to see if it impacts sort of these fringe playoff races going in, going forward. But um, yeah, it's tough to see this having huge sort of like sweeping league wide effects. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, again, this is going to have implications if it's passed by the voted upon and passed by the board of governors. Uh, it'll have implications right now, you know, on how team building happens here for the next few seasons leading up to the 2019 uh, NBA draft. All right, um, we were going to jump into the Hornets schedule, but maybe we should just save that for the season preview because we actually do have quite a well we got I think, three twitter questions we need to get to here yep. so, so i'll just go ahead and roll those out richie um is it and this is from Z, oh richie you say this last okay. name actually yeah. you just go ahead and present them because okay. you know how i am with well, there you go we'll, we'll kind of go <laughs> rapid fire through these questions the first question from zachary pletchen at zdp 5000 uh, his question is is it reasonable to not expect much from malink monk uh, due to injury early in the season, and I think I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think early in the season we kind of touched upon it earlier in the show here that yeah, I think that it's going to take a while for him to get back into game shape. And whenever you're a rookie with 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 uh, Clifford anyway, I feel like the the limit the limitation on on minutes is definitely there. And um, you know, I think because he is. A player that dropped, and we we have these high expectations because of um, you know he should have been higher in the draft. I don't think we should have those with with Clifford and with his injury. So I would say yes. I think it is reasonable to say that yeah, early on, maybe the first month, first two months of the season, uh, we shouldn't expect this breakout performance from Monk. Yeah, I would um, I would agree. I think that it's I think it's very reasonable to think uh, we shouldn't expect much from from Malik Monk to start the season. He's a rookie. We know Clifford's history with rookies, and uh, and we're just not sure how healthy he is. So, yeah, I think it's very reasonable to believe that. Uh, I'm, I, I won't repeat what you guys just just <laughs> said, but I'll just add: we just what we were just kind of hitting on the importance of getting super talented guys early on in the lottery, and how 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 necessary that is towards team building and stuff. And it would just be it would if you think Malik Monk is a future superstar, then it would be irresponsible to rush him back and expect big things super early on. So no, um, patience is a virtue here with in life and with Malik Monk's development, probably. Yes, yes. Next question from Ellis Cohn at Ellis Cohn on Twitter. Uh, his question is: If Kemba were to get injured, would you play Michael Carter Williams or try to mold Monk into a point guard? since our season would likely be over anyway. I would say both. I mean, I feel like if Kemba was injured, Michael Carter-Williams would be the starting point guard, as bad as that sounds, and then Monk would be the backup point guard. So I, I think the answer to that is both. Uh, it, it's a it's a scary thing to think about if Kemba were to go down. I think, obviously, he's our most important player, uh, and it would affect our, our season greatly. I don't know if we would throw the season away, but... Um, or like change anything drastically, but I think that naturally that's what would happen. MK or MCW would be there. We go. There we go. Yeah. Would be the starting point <laughs> guard, and then Monk uh, would kind of run that second unit. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Actually, um, you know, we never want to <laughs> imagine that scenario, but it's very possible. Um, and I agree with you, Richie. I mean, I think MCW. Let me repeat that. M M C W. Yeah, I got, I think I got it actually. Um, <laughs> so, um, I think MCW is definitely your starting point guard. I, I think he sees a lot of minutes, probably more than, than he should see with his injury history. And I think Monk naturally gets 
a lot of those um, backup point guard and maybe backup point guard is not even the way to say it. Just right. ball handling duties that come naturally uh, from that Kimba injury. So, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, Richie. Yeah, I, I would think, I mean, I, I would honestly, depending on when it happened, just throw in the towel on the season and, and try to get try to get a, a high draft pick. 2018 draft supposed to be really good. But you never know, too. There are some other things as far as the buyout market and stuff goes, if you could, if you could find – options there or whatever but no i would say the in all likelihood this that the scenario would be carter williams at the one with malik kind of being the second sort of creator on the roster yeah i, I would hate to think if, if if kimba was out how our season would turn out it would make more sense to kind yeah. of tank that way so a lot of games. <laughs> yeah he's he's the he's the one player that we can least afford to lose but anyway there's one more question from um, Ellis uh, Cohn. Uh, why does Clifford think rookies have to earn their minutes, but Dwight is an auto starter over Zeller, uh, who is one of our best players? <sighs> Golly, I guess because he has a relationship with Dwight. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest factor there. And then with rookies, you know, they have to earn their minutes. I think that's true for anything. I mean, I think that if you're new to something, you gotta you got to earn your, earn your keep there. And I think one thing I feel like Clifford stresses defense so much. I feel like that's the biggest thing that rookies have to learn is defense, um, especially with Monk here. He's going to have to learn that side of the ball. So I, I don't know if it's if it's that or or if it's just necessarily that you're a rookie. Um, I'm not really sure. So do you guys have any thoughts on this? Why why is Dwight already a starter over Zeller compared to maybe a rookie having to earn minutes? Yeah, Ellis, I would tell you your question um, is completely valid, and I like the way you're thinking there. Um, I would I would ask you to imagine this situation. Imagine uh, trading for a guy, uh, i.e. Dwight Howard, that his last three stops in the NBA have been complete nightmares. So then imagine being a Hornets fan and imagine trading for that guy, and then imagine bringing him in and not starting him. <laughs> Dwight Howard with that personality – and now you have a $25, a $25 million nightmare in you sitting right in your lap. That's pretty much why he's starting. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, you guys touched on the two things. It's it. I think definitely it's part of the defensive system. Cliff, Cliff being a little rigid there, but it's the money, right? I mean, Malik Monk, or any other generic first round pick X or Y or Z or whatever, that person's going to make literally a fraction of what Dwight Howard makes this year. And I mean, it's even kind of surprising that, the Hornets are going to be paying a lot of money for a backup guy like Cody Zeller. Like there aren't too many teams that are going to be bringing a, a center off the bench that makes quite as much money as Cody does too. So, um, but yeah, if you're paying a guy 25 million, then this is what you, this is, you got, you basically have to start them, especially in the Eastern conference. And, uh, but no matter what, no matter how good or bad things go with the Dwight deal, we always have to remind ourselves miles Plumley. And that contract no longer in the books. We always gonna tap ourselves on the shoulder and tell us that that, that thing is gone, <laughs> that sucker's gone. So um, there's always a good way to twist any sort of potential Dwight drama story. Miles Plumley might as well be like uh, a, a piece of The Walking Dead. Uh, nobody has figured out the cure for what kills his contract. I mean, there's <laughs> got to be something out there, but we haven't found it yet. So he's just gonna keep walking into different salary cap situations and absolutely eating them alive. So. Uh, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Ten percent of the salary cap. It's amazing. It's we'll tell our grandchildren about that trade. Yeah. All right. Um, 
I think that's it. Good show, fellas. We had some really good conversation. First thing I want to say is this as we wrap the show, and I forgot to mention it. We are a member of the Almighty Baller Radio Network, so please visit almightyballer.com for many other great shows uh, encompassing the rest of the NBA, especially as the season approaches here. Really, really good stuff over there, and we are proud to be a member of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. On behalf of myself, Richie, and Brian, Fellas, we'll see you. When's the next time? I don't think we really know exactly, Uh, but we're gearing up for that Periscope show. Richie, actually, on that note, why don't you kind of give us an update of what we're thinking there? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've plugged enough things, so let's go ahead and plug this Periscope show like we did the draft show. I stated on the last episode, it's not going to be seven hours worth of of, of content here, but I think maybe an hour and a half or so of a preview show for the season where we're going to give predictions, kind of preview different players and lineups and and. You know, just get excited for the season. So I'm not sure exactly when we're going to do it. Obviously, before the season uh, begins, but I, I think uh, it's it's going to be a fun time. You guys should definitely join us on Periscope. All right, fellas. Uh, until next time, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Go Hornets. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.